Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. A lot can happen in a year. Trends, debuts, world-altering events, and pop culture and film is there to reflect it all back to us generations down the line. Welcome to the A Year in Film podcast, presented by Hollywood Suite. I'm your host, Becky Shrimpton, and today I'm joined by film and content specialist Cam Maitland and programmer of the Neon Dream Cinema Club, Brendan Ross. When looking at movies that influence the next generation of filmmakers, it's hard not to see how the movies of the 70s influenced the filmmakers of the 90s. For some, they drew that inspiration from the more serious pieces of cinema, Days of Heaven, The Deer Hunter, and The Godfather, for example. But after Tarantino made a love of 70s exploitation movies socially acceptable in the 90s, wave after wave of modern interpretations were released. And although we've discussed how exploitation movies are violent sex and questionable morals, the best ones do something more. Today, we're going to look at the movie Mindbender mixed with a 70s exploitation action genre. Brendan, what are late 90s filmmakers holding on to from the 70s and what are some good examples? I think there's a stripped down kind of genre quality to the 70s that did kind of have a resurgence in the 90s. Um, the obvious comparison here would be Duel, um, yeah. which is interesting because it's such a it's just such a simple movie. It's such a small kind of stripped down film and uh, it's amazing that that film alone could even sustain a 90-minute runtime, let alone inspire countless other movies after it. We're going from a place in the 80s where it's like all greed is good, all the movies are really slick, they're glossy, all of the dramas are like, here is ha- something happening in an enormous high-rise, you know? And then here, uh, you're starting to see in the, seven, er, in the 90s where independent cinema is becoming more respected, more people are putting money into it. For some reason, awards become more, more important than box office at a certain point, which is really interesting. So people are kind of more mm. willing to um, back these little things that maybe don't have the same glitz that you would see in the 80s and are really gritty in that 70s, we don't know what's going to be a hit sort of way. Mm-hmm. What do you think, Cam? I think that there's also something with that. This is kind of when the, the video market is changing, because I think that the, the exploitation movies existed in the 80s. It was just that they were video movies for the most part. Right. And and like we're going to be talking about Jonathan Mostow and I, he kind of came out of that direct to video, like weird rip off movie genre. But I think that there's something like you're right. You were saying earlier before we were on mic, like Tarantino stuff sort of pushes it into the mainstream. And then I think also the DVD world kind of uh, democratizes exploitation if that makes sense dvds made so much money like it's a little hard to describe but like vhs's uh were great for for rental but often like a little cost prohibitive and i think that dvds just briefly hit that moment where like you could have a cheap movie out on dvd and, and make your money back pretty well. I think we've also on this show a few times lamented the loss of the erotic thriller. (laughs) And although neither of these are erotic thrillers, um, I mean, that's definitely something that was This is kind of the tail end of when you're seeing the last of these. They really Mm -hmm. aren't that many anymore, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that these aren't really, I wouldn't call them erotic, but they do have that same kind of scrappy kind of nature to them that uh, Mm -hmm. a lot of erotic thrillers do. Uh, And kind of this like fly by the seat of your pants, you know, sort of cheap, but also very glossy. There's just such a comforting look to these films, uh, especially I think time is very kind to a lot of them. Yeah. For sure. For Brent, I mean, Brendan, you're basically an expert in these kinds of films. Like, your knowledge wow. base is ridiculous. You run the Neon Dream Cinema, Cinema Club here in Toronto, which is like a staple of people who want to go see like weird stuff from like the 70s, 80s, and 90s that sits into like um, noir interesting, uh, unusual sort of fare that ha- definitely has exploitation elements. I remember going to a cold sweat screening, which if people have not seen that movie, uh, it yes. is bonkers. Uh, go look at Currently available on Hollywood Suite. So, uh, <laughs> Yay, you don't need to look good work, far. Hollywood yeah, Suite. Yeah, no problem. It's the, oh, it's the greatest. I it's hope the greatest. it never comes 
comes um, off Hollywood sweet. I don't think it will based on the numbers it's getting. I don't. Uh, I can't really share the information. But Prime, yeah. it's always there, front and center. Uh, <laughs> oh, it's so wonderful, people. Day glow sex scene mm-hmm. involving. Uh, oh man, it's so great. Um, Adam Baldwin on rollerblades <laughs> and Dave Thomas looking for a paycheck. Yeah. Guys, it's so great. He was, uh, anyway. he was going through a divorce at the time and needed money, but hey, we can. Uh, we yeah, can, who, I we'll, mean, we'll we're, we're going to get it. into it's more so people going through divorces at the time. <laughs> All right. But yeah, just to get into that, I'm curious about what is it about the like what sort of elements of these movies appeals to you, Brandon? What's your thing? Yeah, um, it's so hard to it's it's kind of hard to explain because, you know, it's kind of like I, I when I see it, I know I like it. But uh, I think there is going back to what I was saying before about how like a lot of these films have a very stripped down quality. I feel like now a lot of modern films, there is a real push to do more and say something uh, in addition to just kind of like delivering the goods uh, where you didn't really I mean. I think there was a lot of that in the 80s and 90s, but for the most part, especially in genre cinema, it was kind of just like give the people what they want and don't worry about, you know, littering and other things to make this more relevant or more, you know, culturally powerful, uh, just kind of just deliver. Um, and I think there was just a certain look to it, of course. I mean, one obvious example is uh, most, of these sh- most of these films were shot on film. Uh, which you just don't get anymore, and everything kind of seems to have a sort of plasticky, very digital sheen to it that just doesn't look as appealing. Also, the last of film, too, right? We're just about to start going into everybody shooting digital or hybrids thereof, right? and editing digitally, too. I think this is one of the last films that was actually uh, edited uh, organically, manually, uh, and uh, it definitely adds a quality to it. There is something that, like, it's... I don't know, it really pulls you in and it really you what it feels like even as ridiculous of a concept it is what you're seeing is real there's no kind of cgi when you're seeing a semi-truck smashing into a car you're okay. actually seeing that semi-truck smashing into a car uh, and it just makes it so much more thrilling than when it just cuts to you know a cgi explosion you know what? That is a great place to get into our first film because our beloved Kurt Russell is no stranger to stunts. <laughs> and he also was no stranger to yuppie going up against various forces while confronting his own masculinity movies. Think about movies like Unlawful Entry, where Kurt struggles with his ability to protect his wife in the onslaught of Ray Liotta's increasingly insidious police officer. His everyman good looks and easy manner make him a perfect audience surrogate. So although Breakdown is not based on a true story. The opening lines of the trailer are, it could happen to anyone, inviting you into an updated world of exploitation while saying, you can wear a lavender polo shirt, but if the chips were down, you could hunt down the man who kidnapped your wife. Now, Brendan, do you see yourself in Russell's shoes here? Is he your surrogate? Uh, I mean, I see him more, I, myself as more of him in this movie than I do as, say, Snake Plissken, if that helps. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Fair. Yeah, I mean, there is definitely something relatable about this kind of era of his 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 gigs. Uh, I call this the Kurt Russell has a tucked-in shirt and doesn't know how he got into this mess trifecta. <laughs> uh, belonging to, I think, I guess it kind of started with unlawful entry in '92, uh, executive decision in '96. Also, kind of yeah. follows that, and then of course breakdown. Uh, it's this just great era where he plays a kind of nerdy everyman that is always getting himself into mixed up in situations that he doesn't belong in and doesn't know how to you get know. himself out of. Bantering with his wife about donuts to clinging for, to the underside of a semi truck as he tries to get like it's like how do you do that? How many times? At the, how long have you been at the gym to be able to accomplish that as a normal human? All right. That having been said, what is the plot? Why is he clinging to the bottom of this truck, Brandon? Oh boy. So Kurt Russell took a. He I guess he he got a new job. And he's traveling with his wife across country. Can you remember if it's a job interview or if he's actually got it lined up? I, I, I think the know. job is lined up and they're going to a new, they're, they're actually moving to the new location yeah, from my understanding. Like they're life. scoping out the new place. Yeah. yeah. They're starting a new life and they're traveling across country in their fancy new Jeep Cherokee, which uh, is great <laughs> because this really was a time where the Jeep Cherokee was <laughs> like the symbol of success. If you were driving mm-hmm. a Jeep Cherokee, you had money. Uh, as it turns out, through conversation, they they aren't really as financially secure as the Jeep Cherokee might imply, uh, and they actually are kind of destitute in a way, or they have they have money complications. Mm-hmm. Uh, but all of the 
all of the country folk that see them immediately assume that they have a lot of money. Uh, and it kind of ends up transitioning into a kidnapping plot where his wife gets kidnapped. He doesn't have anybody to reach out to because uh, it's seeming it seems like everybody in the town is in on this he has to take things upon himself because he can't trust the police he can't trust any of the people that are at the diner he can't trust the gas station attendant it seems like everybody is against him because they are i mean there's obviously duel in here mm-hmm. but i gotta admit i mix up this with the vanishing all the time it's very similar to um the vanishing which i believe it's it's a nordic film right it's norwegian right, or it's yeah. swedish it's something like yeah. that and then they made a they made a, an American version that is not as good with Kiefer Sutherland. I think it's Even though Dutch. it's like shot for shot. Yeah. Is it Dutch? Okay, thank you. All right, it's Dutch. Yeah, I'm, I'm like, it's it's some something I required subtitles to watch, <laughs> but, I, but I liked it very much. And I mean, it's interesting because uh, Jonathan uh, Jonathan Mostow even himself goes, this is not an original plot line. Like mm. everybody knows this story. It's pretty standard. He's like, but I feel like the way we've executed this is really unusual and it's really effective. Mm. And I have to admit watching this, this was not my cup of tea. And I think the reason why is because it is so well executed. I do not like watching people who are completely powerless just consistently getting one-upped and one-upped and one-upped. <laughs> the ending, spoiler alert, was satisfying for me. Yes. <laughs> but but I, I had to like skip forward a couple things and it it just got a little like it got a little too intense for me in moments. It, yeah, this was my particular button. <laughs> yeah, that's so fair. your only complaint about the movie is that it's too effective. Yeah, I'm surprised we're not seeing more of these movies because, as you mentioned, like modern in modern day, because as you mentioned, this is a lot like Duel. It's very stripped down. The mm. plot line is very clear. It's um, almost single location. It's like he's either yeah. on the road or he's in the diner or he's at this guy's house. The most expensive thing would have been the fact that they're crushing all of these vehicles and like oh, things are crashing uh, into each other. Let me tell you, I mean, if we want to get into the most expensive thing, the most expensive thing is Kurt Russell demanded to be home every evening, which involved <laughs> a jet plane and a helicopter to set every morning and every evening. And Jonathan Mostow said that this movie could never be made today based on the transportation budget, <laughs> which is wild. Uh, In his yes. defense, he didn't. He was on the fence about even taking this movie because he yes. kind of decided that he wanted to yes. just be home with his family. So yeah, this yeah. is kind of... Uh, and if you i mean yeah the other thing to know is like the weird thing is like well number one he was coming off escape from la which i I think both of us all of us read about he worked all night for that which sounded miserable for him and his family but then the other thing to know which i think a lot of people like it nowadays you think of kurt russell as like the star of the 1980s but like his films in the 1980s those carpenter movies for the most part were like bombs and he was not really a star till the 90s with stuff like tombstone and stargate so like this is also when he was at his peak he had just done soldier or he's just about to do soldier i think and that's where he's paid the most per word of any actor at the time because he <laughs> has like yeah he doesn't say anything uh so yeah it's like a weird time where like yeah kurt russell could demand essentially whatever he wanted so yeah nobody was mad that he asked for this but it is but it's nuts it is nuts. it's also environmentally unfriendly oh, yeah. um yeah. but this is this is also a movie that like it's sold on on the back of Kurt Russell. Like if you were going, like I don't see many no. people, like the box office on this wasn't big, but no. I'm sure the home video DVD market of this was absolutely oh, enormous. Yeah. Like Brendan, how did you first see this one? Uh, great question. I definitely didn't see it in theaters. I know I watched it at home. I was pretty young. It, it was, it must've been on cable. Um, and I definitely remember it striking a chord with me. Um, and, and the main thing was being just how dangerous it felt and i think that kind of goes back to what you're saying what is what makes this kind of era of action filmmaking so special is that it does feel dangerous and not just about by how it looks but just like by the content in it i think that comparatively today most action films especially studio action films really need to be palatable to everyone and something like having kathleen quinlan in like a very dangerous and terrifying situation Mm -hmm. like that I don't think that would fly with uh, with most studio films nowadays. So I think seeing that, like, you really don't know if she's alive or dead. You don't really know where this is going. And just oh, how grisly... there's that moment when Kurt Russell is watching them over the balustrade, That's... and she's playing dead yeah. in the thing, and they're like, "She's dead. She she, yeah. she she offed herself, which makes it better. We'll just bury yeah. her out back." And it's like, "Ooh, I do not like it." To me, <laughs> I that's do not the scene like that it. makes the film. Suicide. <laughs> Be any cleaner than that now, could you? 
it's not even that she offed herself. They think she accidentally died from the fumes. Yeah. Right. Which is yes, like, yes, yes. oh, that's rough for yeah. everyone yeah. involved. But yeah. but I also think that it, talking about the danger, it's like, it's quite interesting to see, like, these are all practical stunts. Mm-hmm. And for a movie like this, even for a movie like Duel, which is, is all practical, obviously, mm-hmm. this movie just feels like particularly stunty crazy well there are like 25 stunt people that are attributed in the credits to this however one of them is not kurt's regular guy dick warlock dick warlock is nowhere to be seen which i was very surprised not his real name but an (laughs) excellent stunt person dick warlock wanted to spend time with his family probably after (laughs) doing (laughs) that was the stunt role he was taking for kurt (laughs) am i getting this right dick warlock played one of the michael myers is right yes i believe so that's correct yeah yeah yeah, two. Part two. I, I, th- yeah, I think he took over. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Dick Warlock. What a guy. He comes up all the time. <laughs> Same with Kathleen Quinlan. I'm like, this is the second time we've seen Kathleen Quinlan menaced in the 1990s. Is, yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly. Woman. She's also in. She's also in Event Horizon, which we. Oh. I think we just oh, talked about. Oh yeah, or you're about to. And yeah, Hand the Rocks the Cradle. Of course, yes. uh, we talked about last year. But yeah. yeah, going back to that that scene, I think that that is some of like the. I mean, that's a scene that I think really nails it. Is that really elevates the film? I think it's it's it stops being just kind of this like trashy thrill ride and really becomes something very dramatic. Like I really think that Kurt Russell's acting in that when him going through those motions of seeing like hiding, trying to be completely silent, seeing his wife thinking that she's dead, then realizing that she is still alive. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's basically like that scene from Clifford that, uh, you know, can't you just make me look a normal <laughs> Everything boy? Everything goes through so many emotions yeah, yeah. in one yeah. in a couple <laughs> seconds. This for me, I think, is um, like I said, this was not my cup of tea, but for someone, this is their cup of tea. And if they have not seen it, this is the thing. But something I do like about it that I think is extremely effective that I think we need to look at more is insinuation. Like it Mm -hmm. it is insinuating they are sexually assaulting her. You never see it. It never actually happens. But there's a line that comes out that is absolutely gross where he refers to both her hair color above and below where you're Mm like, okay, they've done something terrible to her. And you don't see it, but you know. And there's so much insinuation of what they're doing to her and what they're going to do to him that just adds this air of menace that you don't have to see for you to go, it's awful. And I think what what you're talking about too is a very interesting thing where you hear multiple times, like Jonathan Mostow, the the story writer and director, uh, he said he cut a lot of the film that was just establishing stuff because he was like oh well you can just see this in the way they act kurt russell apparently went through the whole script with him cut a ton of lines jt walsh when they gave him the script cut a ton of lines so it's like kind of this fancy like apparently it was a much more complicated plot for the bad guys and jt walsh is like it's enough for, for him to just want money uh, he's like, well, that's enough. The, <laughs> I mean, the other benefit to it is you see how it all works because you see it unfold, mm-hmm. right? And you see when it goes wrong, who is coming to stop and do what True. they have to do. Like, it, it's I, really I, smart. I do want to ask you guys, though, this plan is <laughs> nuts, right? Like, Ludicrous. there's got to be Bonkers. easier ways to get to rob a bank than uh, whatever the, the hell's going on. The fact that they're just banking that some rich yuppie yeah. who's worth $90,000 is coming through who's going to be able to pay enough well, for this. I mean, I guess like, that's, a, that's a big question. Like, did they actually plan this beforehand? There is an implication that they've done it to other people. <laughs> they yeah. have to. But it doesn't seem to. like it's like they saw him and his Jeep Cherokee and they were kind of like, well, shit. <laughs> Just called around. Hey, can you uh, pretend to be uh, like uh, like you've, you're a little touched? Uh, hey, can you pretend to be blah, blah, blah? Like, I kind of love it. And this is two movies where both are like, why would you go to this effort for any of this? But yeah, I love it. Wasn't it. Yeah, not that much money either. No, no, it's th- like it's not. It's, it's tens of thousands, even. Jeez, but Louise. it's not ninety thousand, I think. Oh, it, and she gets gosh. that amount from the donut thing, right? Yes. Which is the very beginning. Yeah. And, oh yeah. yeah, I also love that there. Like there are ways that all of them are one step ahead of the bad guys. Like Kathleen Quinlan is mostly off screen, but you hear that she's put together these elaborate lies that have kept her alive pretty well. Yeah, and that's an interesting thing to talk about because I, I love. I mean, going back to the implication of you know of abuse. Um, I've seen a lot of films where they kind of go that that angle as well. And then when that happens, she's she would no longer be a character. She would just kind mm-hmm. of be a victim. And I kind of love and a that, plot that device. at yeah. no point does it feel like Kathy Kuhnland is just a victim. Like yeah. she's kind of, you know, she's doing stuff even if it's on camera. And then, of course, at the very end, you see her get, she 
pulls the the lever yeah. and she gets the Here last. Here is why. Okay. Because Kathleen Quinlan, along with J.T. Walsh and Kurt Russell, also took one look at the script and said, you literally have this woman doing nothing. Yes. She is the plot. Yeah. To be, she's the MacGuffin. Yeah. And that's not okay. Yeah. And so she was the one who said at the very beginning, she's like, I want to do all these little lies. I want, I want more mm. at the beginning. So they actually added stuff for her to do. You know, she yeah. was the one who was like, I'm going to get in the car with the dude. I'm going to do this. She's the one who convinces her husband, like, you know, women's lib. I can get in the car. It's going to be fine. Mm. Um, and she was the one who said, I have to kill him at the end. Oh, That's really I heard important. that that was Kurt Russell. I didn't, I didn't know that. No, okay. it was her. Oh, okay. Kurt Russell helped convince him, but it was her mm. who suggested it. That's fantastic. Yeah, that definitely yeah. makes it a better film, I think. It. Yeah. I think that's the only reason I was like, okay, I am now on board with this film, especially because he dies so horribly. <laughs> yeah. And you know what it reminded me a lot of? The end of Con Air, which is sure. also this year. Oh, sure. Big head-crushing year <laughs> yeah. for 97. Big, big year for MC Ganey menacing people yes. as well. Swamp, <laughs> yes. swamp thing. I always remember that from Con Air. Oh, um, he was great. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, really it's funny. the role that MC Ganey was born to play. <laughs> yeah, yes. What I think is we've been lied to. He ain't no goddamn donut king. Yeah, I mean, it, that's it, it's his role in almost everything is like yeah. the guy <laughs> that you're just like, oh, Jesus. And it's also a great year for something I like is I was like, I seem to remember that this is the time when everyone started talking about uh, road rage. And it is. <laughs> like 1996, yeah. 1997 was like when road rage was like not invented, but it kind of was like there's columns about it and stuff. Yeah. So. And there yeah. was like changing lanes. I guess that was a little bit later. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you're, I think that this started off a whole thing because you're like Jeepers Creepers and like Wrong sure. Turn right. and all okay, those yeah. are kind of like the same sort of thing, right? Was it, was the 90s the era where people realized they're like, don't give somebody the middle finger because it could go bad. Yeah. I mean, I guess there was always the like, don't, uh, don't flick your lights to say that their lights are off or whatever, because they'll come and murder you. There's always those, those like uh, urban legends, but for some reason it's like, I guess in, they were saying that the idea of road rage was coined in the eighties, but somehow in like 1998, it started, there was like freeway shootings in Los Angeles and stuff. And I guess right, it, right, right, right. it really yeah. started to come together. And it's in 1997, they did a poll of the number one worry on the road and people said it was road rage. It finally replaced uh, <laughs> drinking <laughs> as the top concern. So I feel like there's something there and MC Ganey's so good at it. And I know you guys want to talk about JT Walsh because he's like the opposite. He's the, uh, the cool menacing guy. <laughs> yeah, never raises his voice, never, no. uh, never loses his temper he is the coolest but that's why he's effective all right brendan i know you want to get into this i mean the 90s really are the age of like the the greatest character actors i think they're getting the most to do it let's talk about jt walsh who this is unfortunately one of his last films that's right yeah he uh he died of a heart attack one year later i think he had one i think he had two films after this but the only real major studio film was uh pleasantville and then he uh he died of a heart attack far too early he was a uh, I think a lifelong smoker, just a name smoker, and it had its toll on him. But uh, but yeah, he really is like, if you're talking about character actors, I can't imagine not bringing up not bringing up J.T. Walsh's name because he kind of really did embody that. He was a guy that he, he's the ultimate like, oh that guy. Like everybody kind of knows his face. A lot of people don't know his name, but he was someone that's just had this really incredible career and was just such a uh, an expert on the craft and like really just respected the craft of acting. Uh, I remember hearing and Kevin Pollack told a story about when they were on A Few Good Men and he was Kevin Pollock was kind of new to, to acting and just being around this many heavy hitters, uh, he was v very vulnerable. Uh, and J2 Walsh immediately picked up on that and he just kind of sat him down and like let him know how good of a job he was doing and how like what ca what character acting is all about. And it just mm -hmm. immediately made him feel so much better about being in the film. And I think like everybody who's worked with him seems to have a story like that. He is the man. Well, good to he know. is also a man who deserves a much better picture on IMDb. It's like a weird <laughs> paparazzi candid photo. I'm like, someone's yeah. got to fix that. On There's Wikipedia, be they used the photo, yeah. a photo from, still from this movie. From Breakdown. Yeah. And it's like, I was like, he looks pretty handsome. But I realized I was looking at <laughs> the wrong thing. Yeah, I, he, he's an interesting guy. And I mean, I love that like he's he's like a David Mamet guy because he started out. Uh, uh, he originated Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. And then mm. he's so good. Well, at, and A Few Good sense. Men is kind of like what made him the guy from the 90s. But yeah, it's very interesting yeah. when these people have such 
like short careers but his career is like a ton of bangers uh mm-hmm. it's very interesting and, and like lots of great tv too weirdly yeah and he also he's one, also one of those guys that didn't like start off in film like he was like a like door-to-door salesman i think like wow. he's one of those guys that had like a million different jobs before <laughs> finally being like this acting thing seems to be something <laughs> oh and yeah gymnasium really... equipment salesman <laughs> yes, i love that that's right. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, one thing that's really interesting is that uh, Kurt Russell and Jonathan Mostow, they both independently were thinking about how, uh, they're both independently thinking about who should play J.T. Walsh's role, and they both came to the conclusion that J.T. Walsh is the best person to play it, totally independent of each other. And when they met the next day, they were both like, J.T. Walsh, J.T. Walsh. We both said J.T. Walsh. And they were like, (laughs) Well, I also want to talk about the fact that Mostow only made this film uh, mm-hmm. because he had a gap in his schedule because the uh, money for what he was supposed to do and the, the project fell through because he was supposed to direct the game yeah. and, that uh, fell, well, and that fell through. I'm also going to say my other favorite thing is he was supposed to direct like the reason why he was he had this idea is he was supposed to direct an adaptation of Stephen King's Trucks which is yes. what was Maximum Overdrive, eventually is a film in 1997 starring Timothy Busfield that I think got away from Mostow because it shot in Canada. So I think uh, that they went fine. with a more like regional Canada director to get those tax credits. But yeah, so he said he, he prepped trucks and he just had all the locations and then was like, shit, <laughs> I, just, <laughs> I need to make up a movie about a truck that is, can go to like a truck stop. And I love that. And I love that they, those dumb circumstances that came up with a great movie yeah. and arguably like, I don't want to talk shit too much. And I will say I watched Jonathan Mostow's first movie, which is a short film in this thing called Fright Club, which was a delight. Uh, but he doesn't have a lot of, like, U571 is really his only other kind of respected movie. I mean, there's Terminator 3 uh, well, I mean, That is not a respected movie. I will say, movie. compared there's to great, There's some great stunt work in that. <laughs> there are the, people that defend Jurassic yeah. World Part 2. <laughs> the, the more Terminators we make, the better Rise of the Machine looks, I will say. <laughs> That's a great way to play it. And it speaks well to Breakdown, I think, and U571 that he got Terminator 3. Because I, I think Jim Cameron usually approves those guys. So, yeah, I don't know. There's bits of it. Come on. Uh, her coffin being full of guns? Great. Sure. <laughs> Claire <laughs> I, I remember Danes. there was a great freeway scene in Terminator 3. It's basically oh, all I yeah. remember. With, like, the Terminatrix. Involved. I remember yes. that being very impressive. That's literally I think the it's only a, thing I remember about it. Like a fire truck. It's pretty good. Yeah. Uh, it's got a bummer ending. But, yeah, I think as there are more and more bad Terminators, Terminator 3 doesn't seem so bad. I am taking us into the next film. (laughs) All right. right, So when we come back, we're going to look at a movie that uh, was the sophomore effort of one Mr. David Fincher. Was it as successful as Seven? Could it have been as successful as Seven? We're going to get into that after the break. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems, too like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When what's in the box became one of the catchphrases of the late 90s with the release of Seven, David Fincher became the hottest director in Hollywood. Before that, he was known for his music videos for people like Madonna, Sting, and Paula Abdul. Weird trivia bit, he did the gauzy She's Like the Wind music video for Patrick Swayze's bid for pop stardom. And, of course, the maligned at the time, Alien 3. 
With a success of seven, Fincher's next work was eagerly anticipated. As we mentioned in the previous segment, the game, in several forms, had been floating around Hollywood. And Fincher, always one for a good heart-pounding mind-mess-up movie, please see Fight Club A All, picked it up. Did he regret it? Let's get into it. Cam, can you explain the game? <laughs> I mean, not fully, but I can explain the plot <laughs> of the game. Uh, I definitely can't explain why it's a function, why they think it's a good idea. Uh, but uh, <laughs> no, uh, uh, the game uh, stars Michael Douglas as Nicholas Van Orden. Uh, and in the uh, opening scenes, we see a kind of weird, ephemeral. Uh, childhood home movie of his father uh fun fact played by charles martin at the voice of super mario yeah. i had to look uh, that up because i was like he, he did look a lot like michael douglas in. yeah i, I yeah. mean it's great and i think i think he was just kind of a, a regular actor before mario 64 where i believe he started to voice super mario oh no he was doing it before what? then like we're talking like paper mario like even oh. way before mario 64 he's been he and he does luigi too he does both oh, wow and the animated anyway. series yeah. as well i believe no, no, I don't think that's him. No, that's I think somebody that else. that was the yeah the Captain Lou Albano era uh, predates him. Yeah, oh, Mar- Mario teaches typing might be his earliest. That's, there we go. <laughs> uh, <laughs> anyway, <laughs> dumb aside. Uh, Nicholas Van Orton, played by Michael Douglas, is a, a a real cold fish. I read somewhere, which I agree with. <laughs> He's a stuck-up businessman who takes everything too seriously. He's divorced. He's miserable. Um, his brother, played by Sean Penn Conrad, who's quite younger than him, you, you see that in the, the home movies, who's a, had a bit of a troubled past, uh, reemerges on his birthday. He's ha- He has fun. He's having a good time. Uh, and uh, he gives uh, a gift to Michael Douglas of this strange gift. Uh, experiential game it's weird because at the time it was this is like a thing that did not exist nowadays the thought of the game is like yeah yeah there's things like the game all over the place you, you can <laughs> i wouldn't be surprised if rich people actually played the game uh but uh at the time a like experiential game was weird uh in spite of his misgivings, Michael Douglas kind of gets interested in it. He uh, he signs up with this corporation to play a game, uh, but then th- things seem to seem to go south. This game is uh, rigged. It's crazy. Uh, he <laughs> his house gets ruined. His money gets stolen. Everything seems to be going out of control. He seems to be being blackmailed with photos of uh, uh, you know sex workers and drugs, and uh, he's. He's losing his mind. Uh, when will the game stop? And what is the point of this nefarious game? Is it a game? Is the company real? Is it all in his mind? That kind of stuff is the whole movie. Pretty much, <laughs> yeah. yes. And I mean, okay, spoiler alert, we're going to ruin this movie. I mean, yeah, we, we, we already ruined Breakdown. Yeah. yeah, no, Exactly. So, and, yeah, yeah. And the so, ending I mean, is like the hang-up, I think, that most people have is the third act, including uh, <laughs> Mr. David Fincher himself. <laughs> <laughs> well, I love the fact that his wife told him, don't make this movie. Do not make this movie. His wife also yeah. being a, uh, a producer uh, in her own right. I believe she actually produces his films. Uh, mm. Sean Chafin yeah. was quoted, she was extremely vociferous. <laughs> Which is like, all right. And I like, I get it. And I do agree that there's massive third act problems. I do agree. I don't understand what this game is supposed to like. Has this changed Michael Douglas for the better? Hard to imagine. But, uh, but I think it's a fun movie and he should have done it. I, I don't know why he thinks he shouldn't have done it at this point. Yeah, I okay. I full disclosure, and this is going out there, and people are going to now question me. I don't like David Fincher movies. Yeah, now, I yeah. want to be very clear. I recognize that not for me is different than not good, and I just think that David Fincher movies are not for me. Sure. I don't like the projects he picks. I don't care for his style. It's just not my particular cup of tea. The game is my cup of tea. I think this is so much fun. And I think the reason why I like it so much is because it's a movie that is about expectations and it's created visually based on thinking about what audiences are looking at and what they're expecting. Because if you show a close-up of something, you're like, oh, I'm going to use that later, which, Cam, we've talked about how infuriating it is when they don't yeah. use that oh, thing yeah. later, specifically in Turbulence. Fincher's the master of that, definitely. And I, and I pointed to, when you were like, I don't like Fincher movies, I'm like, Panic Room? Because I think Panic Room is is maybe even a better version of this, where it's just set up, pay off, set up, pay off, set up, pay off. And like, that's Agreed. It. And I, I like 
like I like that also because I really really like Jodie Foster and I'll watch just about anything she's in. <laughs> but, um, but I think that's that's another example of a movie of his that I quite enjoy. And Alien Three, I like Alien Three. Uh, which the controversy. Uh, yeah, it sounds like David Fincher might have a problem with the David Fincher movies you like. Apparently, <laughs> yeah. I like the movies he doesn't <laughs> yes, like. Yeah, yeah he, he, so there we you go. hate the one that you like the ones he's ripped his name off of in anger. <laughs> uh, but it's worth saying that in spite of his misgivings, like the game is on the Criterion Collection. It, it, it yeah. is, I, 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 when I started out, I literally wrote down like a question for you guys of like, is his old stuff as respected as his new stuff? And then I immediately saw this was on the Criterion Collection and I'm like, okay, tear up that I note. think it's the only one. It? <laughs> it might be. I don't know. I don't know. I, that's, but that's wild to me, actually. Because as much as I, you know, I think that Seven's a bit exploitation-y and stuff, it's kind of like, that's kind of the style piece, I guess. And mm-hmm. yeah. I think this is because this is a movie maker's movie. Like I said, sure. he's thinking about the audience and how to misdirect them. Like, it's all sleight of hand. And I think that's really cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of my, I, I feel like the thing that I love about this movie, but it also makes me <laughs> difficult to enjoy, is just the complete lack of logic to everything. Sure. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I mean, I, I never, I, I always love that. Like, I, I think that logic is overrated in films for the most mm. part. So I never, I, I always try to not question anything that's happening. But this one really tests that. There's just oh, so yeah. many yeah. moments where you're like, okay, how much did this cost? <laughs> yeah, yeah. How oh, did they pull I mean, off that, that, like, yeah. that newscaster yeah. stunt? Like, how on earth is <laughs> sure. that even possible? Yes, that... yeah. I mean, he said there's a camera in his house, I guess. But, uh, yeah, but you hire the newscaster? But, no, the, <laughs> I definitely think that there's an interesting thing. I, I was reading somebody else talking about, like, kind of puzzly movies. And I think it was actually talking about Breakdown. Uh, and, and they were saying that these movies, you have to be able to go back and rewatch them. Like, there has to be a pleasure in that. Because you're like, yeah. oh, shoot. I got to figure it all out. Because we're about to talk about The Sixth Sense, right? Sure, yeah, yeah. And that, uh, yeah, well, I mean, it's the perfect version of that because you can go back and you see that he can't open doors and he can't do X and Y. Whereas this one, it doesn't work, but it still almost has a pleasure. Like, there's almost a pleasure at doing, unfortunately, the, like, cinema sins thing, but I guess this predated it of being like, well, he's firing a real gun. The the, the thing broke. You're telling me they're firing real guns at this guy? (laughs) Like, there's all these weird, but I mean, I mean, even David Fincher says he loved the bit where, uh, like, he's in uh, Deborah Kara Unger's apartment and he realizes it's, like, set decorated. What's wrong? Take the picture out of the frame and show it to me. All right. That was that's what sold that's David one. Fincher on the movie. Is he was he was essentially like I don't know about this whole script, but that moment I gotta film it. So yeah, I don't know. There's something to it. I think that's one of the best moments in the film, especially because, and I know Brendan, you wanted to talk about this. Deborah Kara Unders' roommate is our personal favorite, Linda Manns. Yeah, um, yeah, it's amazing that she's in this movie. Obviously, it's not a huge role. No. <laughs> um, she only has a couple lines of dialogue, and she probably is on screen for four minutes total. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, but it's just amazing that she's there. I guess the reason, I think, uh, Becky, you can speak to this more than me, but I believe the reason that she's in this is because Michael Douglas loves Days of Heaven so much and particularly loves her in it and actually pulled her out of retirement just so that she could have this kind of glorified cameo. Um, and she's great. I mean, she's great in it. Um, she's great when she's actually like speaking. She's also great at the end when she's just standing there at the party scene. I mean, she's always <laughs> front and center. So obviously he wanted to mm-hmm. give her as much screen time as as the character would allow, I guess. Here's what I think. And here's like another weird film thing. I think she's playing herself. And here's why. So the reason why I figured out why she was in the movie, et cetera, et cetera, is uh, there is a, of course there is, there is a Twitter feed that goes through and breaks down every single Easter egg in every single Fincher movie, oh, <laughs> and there is a whole. I tell me about it. It's like yeah. deep. It's like, it's it's deep. It goes it goes big. Like of course, Spike Jones is also in this, yeah. and he's playing uh, one of the paramedics. You know, his good buddy, etc. Who would make his debut? I believe in '99 with um, being John Malkovich. Uh, being yeah. John Malkovich. Thank you. Anyway, so she, if you look, she's in this front and center, and then in the Chinese restaurant where he figures out that the other guy was an actor. Her a picture in Days of Heaven is just below that picture. Mm looking at the camera, which makes me think, 
I think she's playing herself. Sure, that it's like Linda Manns hasn't been in a lot of movies lately. And she, so, so they can bring her into the game and give her a paycheck. For, right, yeah. the, for the game. I, either she's on the rocks. And I mean, it's worth saying this is her final film role. Gummo's the same yeah. year, yeah. but this is, uh, depending on the release dates, this might be her last movie, which is a bit strange, but interesting. And it's it's over a decade after um, yeah, so what could have been? <laughs> so basically the theory is that the, I guess, the producers of the game were just big Linda Mann's fans. And they're yeah. like, hey, I think we can get her. Yeah. And she was <laughs> famous as a kid, not an adult. They won't know what she mm-hmm. looks like. Like we've exactly. been spending all this money on these commercial actors. Why don't we get someone yeah. that actually has some cred? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> obvious commercial actor James Rebhorn, the uh, guy you, you would never. Sure, he's so good in this. He's so good. Yeah. yeah, I would actually argue that he's my favorite part in this movie. There's a, oh, yeah. uh, he just has so much fun with it. <laughs> uh, in a movie where everybody in the movie I feel is quite serious, uh, he is just going full ham and just loving every minute of it. Yeah. Need to fill out uh, these forms. There's an application and, uh, and a couple of psych tests there, the MNPI and the PAP. Oh, uh, uh, for the financial questionnaire, don't answer anything you don't feel like. I love when we get to the end and Michael Douglas is just apologizing to the various things he has done for the various things he's done to people. And when he says to his ex-wife's new husband, I love, sorry about your car. I think I left it at the zoo. Yeah. <laughs> that was good. That was good. Lines. But there was, there was a great point that I think was uh, maybe from the commentary where they were talking about there's all these humorous moments, including James Rebhorn. And, and Fincher said that like he wanted Rebhorn to be just like the, the most realistic, slumpy guy in the middle of this <laughs> shiny-ass corporation mm-hmm. just for you to be like i don't know what's happening uh like purposefully but michael douglas said the thing that i loved is he's like there's actually so much humor in this movie because they decided early on that the thing that nicholas van orton that he's afraid of is humor like he is not a light-hearted person and whenever he's in a humorous situation he is the most uncomfortable so that's also why sean penn is like constantly just doing pranks and jokes and like he hates it yeah. and that's such a great choice where they're where he's like yeah we can fill this movie with comedy because this guy is put off by comedy <laughs> he like it's does true. not like being in a funny situation yeah it almost seems like a vaudeville act like when uh when it's sean penn and michael douglas playing off each other it's like this like yeah. the straight man and the goofy guy and uh it is funny when like his his straight responses to you know uh sean penn's ridiculousness <laughs> yes. is, uh, it's great Seymour butts. <laughs> Very funny. Uh, I feel too like we didn't really mention it. So, like I said, uh, um, this was originally supposed to be uh, Mostow's film, and he was originally going to cast Kurt Russell, and then it went to Kyle MacLachlan and Bridget Fonda. Um, and I'm like, it couldn't have been either of them to be in this role. It had to be Michael Douglas. Yeah, and right. the reason being is that this is a '90s response to not only Gordon Gecko, but you're also looking at his characters in Basic Instinct and Fatal Attraction. Mm-hmm. It's the same guy all. All the way through sure. and this is the 90s looking at that and saying we're not that anymore and in fact we're going to screw with that and i think that's really smart yeah it's like the unforgiven of like shady businessmen <laughs> yeah <laughs> and i also think you just don't need to set up much of him uh, outside of he does this dreamy kind of thing about his father which is nice you don't you don't need to set up any of the business shit because you know that's michael douglas baby <laughs> so, so the rest you get to focus on the fact that his father committed suicide the year he is in and he's kind of haunted by that which is yeah it's very interesting i mean it's yeah there's a there's a lot going, and i love sean penn i will say too i think it's a, a kind of an unusual role for sean penn to be this like fun goofy guy who ultimately is good you kind of don't know if he's good or bad there's a there's mm-hmm. a weird streak to that too which is great for sean penn because like in the end he's just a nice kind-hearted guy who's really trying to help his brother yeah but uh, you because it's sean penn you're like and, and deborah Kara unger too i think she's such a strange alien lady that you're just like how nefarious is this woman? And it's like, yeah. Yeah, and it's also interesting to see her having fun too because I think she's mm-hmm. really fun and engaging and like, you know, has a lot of great quips. And I think most of, I mean, she's always a great actor, but I think a lot of her roles are pretty joyless. For sure, for sure. Well, I love the fact that she got this role because she sent in a uh, casting tape of herself having sex for like five minutes in Crash yes. of all movie. <laughs> David, that's David Cronenberg's Crash. Yeah. Um, and uh, even Michael Douglas was like, 
is this a joke? I, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> the quote is so good. Uh, the tape from the movie Crash, it comprised about three minutes of her fornicating in about 19 positions. I thought, <laughs> what is her agent sending out? <laughs> <laughs> but then I think that's like, okay, I can see why she would send that, and I can yeah. see why she sent it for and this apparently, movie. It's really smart. He like he decided to meet with her in real life, and he said especially her sense of humor mm-hmm. really won him over. The, the other thing we should talk about here is that Michael Douglas is going through a really tough time while he made this movie and normally we don't get into like the super gossipy stuff but he talks mm. about it on the director's commentary as being a huge influence on his performance um, was this is the year he got his divorce to Deandra Luker um, at the time Deandra Douglas um, and it was a really really bad divorce he was coming out of his rehab was in 92 for dealing with alcohol and substance abuse um, she got him through that and apparently his therapy is where he realized I should not have been married to this woman for a decade mm. and things just went down from there so their divorce was really difficult it wasn't settled until the year 2000 um at which point he married of course Catherine zeta jones uh and uh she also <laughs> we all has know what the happened largest... there he got that throat <laughs> exactly. cancer right guys i, I won't say that i was wondering if we were going to talk about this <laughs> <laughs> that's the ultimate game, right, guys? Yeah. <laughs> that's right. You just you just gotta yeah. mention it. Sean Penn got um, him again. <laughs> <laughs> uh, did you know that Catherine Zeta Jones actually had written in her prenup? Their prenup is actually apparently one of the most complicated in Hollywood, oh. possibly because of the divorce, um, in which Deandra Lucas uh, at the t- had received the largest settlement up to that point, mm. uh, forty five million dollars plus half of their private island in Majorca, um, <laughs> which she just recently <laughs> lost custody of. They ch- they shared it six months in six months which is oh apparently gosh. very awkward yeah. um, just to just to say the next one that topped that was actually Camille and Kelsey Grammer mm. from The Real Housewives uh, she got 54 million dollars because they didn't have a prenup but that having been said these are things I know um, <laughs> I think I think that really uh, really messed him up going through all this and so you're kind of watching and I think that's one of the reasons he's so good in this is he's just like how do I deal with all of these different webs that I'm trying to get through and get out of this situation so I can be free yeah. Yeah. And I think that's like kind of a metaphor for that. And what do you think? He, he credits, he credits it uh, with that. Like he credits his weird performance at the start. He's like, I just channeled all of my yeah. current life feelings <laughs> into being the most miserable <laughs> like <laughs> Scrooge man. Yeah. And it's so, yeah, it is very Scrooge. Uh, and it is interesting because I mean, the film really does live or die on Michael Douglas's performance and uh, it would be so easy for him to just be this kind of like, you know, unlikable douchebag. And if that were the case, you'd be like, I don't care. Like, I don't care about any of these stuff that he's going through, but because I kind of, he, I think he brings that vulnerability in from that divorce and just from like where he was in his career. And I think because there is this kind of vulnerability to him, you do find him really engaging despite the fact that he's someone you would never want to actually spend time mm-hmm. with. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's very, I agree. It's, there's something and you kind of, you want him to figure it out, I guess. Cause it's a game too. And so, somebody was also saying uh, in a review that th- there is something very charming that he actually, for the most part is playing it. like the minute yeah. he realizes it's a game. He, cause he always has the emergency number and stuff. And he kind of, goes a long time playing the game. He's like, he is interested in winning the game. He likes to win, Which is kind of interesting, yeah. Yeah. The one kernel, I think, that really saves the character is the fact that, like you mentioned, he he loves his brother. And he's, Mm -hmm. the the Mm -hmm. soft spot he has is for his brother. He's willing to drop everything in this world that he's, like, he he lost his wife because of his fortune and and focus on his business. But Mm -hmm. for some reason, he's always there and will drop everything to go see his brother. And you have that one emotional connection that allows you to go through. And I think, I mean, it doesn't hit quite hard enough, but the moment when his brother turns on him thinking he's part of the game, when he's actually part of the game, it just keeps going. Um, That part isn't totally effective for me, but I think it's an, it would be an interesting emotional beat of the idea that someone that you love so much has now turned on you because they believe you're the bad guy. That's interesting. Yeah. And that's also an interesting thing of like, how does this game work if you don't have someone that's as good of an actor as Sean Penn to pull this Mm -hmm. off? Because they, they really, the game seems to expect a lot of the people who are paying for this service. (laughs) Yes. 
<laughs> that's true. Well, too. okay, let's. Uh, and also, just to make sure that you know they aren't going to like. It, but I mean, that's why they do all the tests and stuff. So mm. this is an interesting again. Ninety-seven, like we're talking about face-off. This idea of what technology can accomplish because we're at the cusp of this, right? Mm. And the fact that he does all of those personality tests, all of those health tests, so that they can anticipate what he's going to do next to make sure that the safety net is there when he jumps off the roof and crashes through yeah. all the glass, and, you know, and then goes to yeah. a party after all that adrenaline. Can you, yeah. Can you push really a guy to talk about that? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. That party. Do you think the party would be good? No, <laughs> I, I would just be punching insane. all those people in the face. Yeah. So basically everybody at the party, we've already established that we're spoiling everything here. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, the fact that he, everybody at the party, including his daughter, watched him try and fail to kill himself, and then he just grabs a cocktail after and mingles? Like, how does that work? Because he's dead inside. <laughs> Not anymore. The game brought him back to life. Uh, yeah, he's, he's alive inside. I mean, so I, I, this, is a, this is kind of apropos of nothing, but one thing I did want to bring up, because we were talking about kind of similar movies, is that we were talking about this movie, was they were trying to make it for most of the 90s. And a very fascinating fact to me is that the, the screenwriters became kind of famous for this unproduced script of the game. And the movie they made, the the people were like, you need to make us something like the game. It was the net, baby. (laughs) The the internet version of the game. Which, uh, when you think of that, it's like, this is a great companion double bill now, the net and the the game. And I kind of feel the same way, where it's like, yeah, after all that, she would just be uh, in an an, an asylum or something. (laughs) All these people would just, (laughs) they don't don't believe you're, yeah, you'll lose your mind. I don't Cam, care. is it worth to? I know you rewatched that one. Is it worth a rewatch? I mean, the it's net? funnier. Uh, the oh, game okay. holds up better, I would say. The net, just because it's it's a version of the internet, is so old timey. It's it's yeah. charming, but it's it's got some good mind games. I don't know. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Make that a double bill with Ghost in the Machine. Oh yeah, there you go, there you go. That's <laughs> all those, all those '90s internet panic films are just uh, <laughs> they, they age very well. Yes, yes. There's something wrong about it. I don't, there, there, but there's so much about this movie. Like, I love the cinematography, which mm-hmm. I looked up because I was like, this feels a little different, and it is. It's it's Harris Savid who only also did Zodiac for Fincher. Those are the only two. He he did a bunch of his music videos, uh, but he's not his usual guy, and that's kind of cool. Yeah. And the fact that it's uh, San Francisco, but shot like that. Mm-hmm. is so interesting so dark and i guess a lot of people who are extreme you know the game nerds are like because uh michael douglas was in the streets of san francisco it's like it's like his uh, a twisted version of what made him famous uh, <laughs> but but I, I don't know maybe this is a film like we mentioned earlier that there's a lot of practical stunts in it mm-hmm. and the practical stunts make it great like i love that car scene i think that car scene mm-hmm. is so cool um i love the fact that it's a dive tank uh, that he's going in but like the way it's shot i think it's really neat i think you're right in there with him um i think that's the coolest thing and the, the fact that as he figures out the puzzle of like oh i got this crank and the crank opens the window and now i have to get out the window like i like the step by step by step thinking is really fun for it's me it's the original escape room yeah, yes. I mean that's true. It's, in a lot of ways, it's also like this is kind of Saw. This is kind of a lot of those mm-hmm. movies because Saw is very much like that is Jigsaw's thing. He's trying to get you to cut off your arm so you appreciate life more. So in many ways, uh, it's a sequel to the game. I want to I, I want to ask you guys though, uh, what's your favorite? part of the game is there is there a twist is there a trick that you guys like the best i mean we already covered the apartment scene where he realizes that you know everything is just a facade which is kind of Mm. funny because like they went through so much expenses to make everything look real and they couldn't even put like (laughs) real photos in the whatever uh but i do i do really really love that scene um i really like i actually love just uh all that like I guess it's like eight, like sixteen millimeter footage of uh, mm. him as like a child with his dad. Yeah. It's obviously very succession inspired. Um, yeah. I love the way all that stuff looked. It, uh, I, I thought that really sets the tone incredibly well. Sure. I think for me, the twist of that they—it's all about money and they have it all now. As he's calling all the different mm. accounts, being like, "No, this one's empty. This one's empty. This one's empty." And then he calls his lawyer, and his lawyer's like, "I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> it is all still there." <laughs> and then he, she's like, "He's in on it," and I love. She's so good because she's such an intense actress that, like, Mm. of course you would believe her that she's in on it. The only thing that, okay, 
there's many issues here. But one of, the, one of the issues that I'm like, is it only because he wants to have sex with her that he keeps I believing mean, what she's saying? But I also feel like this is the, the this is the joy of it, right? Like that there is all yeah. these weird. And I definitely I agree that at the end, him being like, hey, you want to go on a date, actress? He's like, sorry, actress what? from my nightmare <laughs> game. Like <laughs> what? But and I, she makes yeah. a good point. She's like, you don't know me. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Uh, and also, like, is this still the game? Like, she should just say that if she wants to get yeah. rid of guys who want to date her. And, like, does every <laughs> does every guy she does the game to go, like, hey, uh, want to go on a date? Like, yeah. So, I mean, but this, I think that there's some joy in that. There's some joy in, like, getting all your friends together. And this is a good movie. Like, it's not a bad movie, but yeah, you can no. almost watch it like a bad movie where it's, like, everybody point out the thing where you're, like, why did they do that? But you, but you can also <laughs> write it all off going, like, I could tell you, Brendan, like, the uh, they put the fake photos in because they want him to realize it's a game. <laughs> sure, yeah. It's another layer. They yeah. make it in a way that you can't criticize anything no. because you can make up some kind of a reason yeah, the for ga- everything. Yeah, the game exists. is so exactly. overwhelming. It's like, they called the mayor. Come on, he's in on it. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I don't know about like uh, scene, like the, you know, the, the, the very end, but I did love that one moment where uh, Conrad gets the bill Mm-hmm. And he looks at it, oh, and yes. then uh, Michael, so Michael Douglas swoops in, and he's like, "Did you want to split it?" And, and uh, he goes, "Oh God, yes." <laughs> I love that because that's that's what I was thinking the whole time when I was watching this movie. I was just like, "What is the budget on this? Like, how much could they to justify all the people that are hired, all these like stunts? Like, they're making so many changes, like the buildings, like for like that elevator sequence. Like, they have to hire a locksmith just to make that key fit inside. Mm. Like, there's just so many expenses <laughs> involved. So I kept on thinking about that." So to get that kind of validation of uh, Sean Penn looking at the bill and being like, oh, boy. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So I'm not a huge human being Sean Penn fan, but I think he's excellent in this role. But I I cannot imagine because this was supposed to be originally Jodie Foster, but she was supposed to be playing his daughter. And this became a bit of a snafu. Michael Douglas, (laughs) my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, Becky, I feel like you got a little more into it. (laughs) <laughs> uh, Michael Douglas decided that somehow, even though she had played his daughter previously, uh, she now was an age that made him look too old to be his daughter, I guess, or something That's like correct. that. So when they first appeared together, it was a Napoleon Samantha, which was for Disney, 1972. He was 27. She was nine. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, at this time, Douglas was 51 and she was 33. Also still totally, totally appropriate acceptable. for father yeah, and daughter. Like a y- exactly. You're a young father. Fair. Yes. But yeah. So, yeah. but she decided instead of instead of that, she said, you know what? I'm not playing that game. Good for her. And uh, because she and she sued Polygram for 14.5 million for breach of contract, yeah. even though she was her production partner, Egg, was in uh, cahoots with Polygram producing a bunch of stuff. Again, good for her. Yeah. Um, and she she got settled. And then five years later, Fincher was like, here is my peace offering. You may make the panic room with me. Do you want to do this? And that's what yeah. they did. And we've talked about this before where people sue for like work lost, essentially. It's kind of a hard Hollywood thing to understand. But if you're prepping for a movie like this and then last minute, some, and obviously this movie had been in preparations forever. So she was probably attached. She might've been attached before Michael Douglas. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, so it's, it's this weird thing where you kind of have to sue to say, I've been waiting, trying to make this movie. Well, like when we talked about Michelle Pfeiffer, she, she, yeah spent so much time waiting for Catwoman it almost ruined her entire career and I hope she got paid for that and I think yeah it's good oh yeah good Jodie Foster got paid for this often it's settled out of court like mm. usually they're just like yeah 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 here's here's some cash money, but I mean didn't yeah. this yeah but the same thing happened like there's pay-to-play contracts where like uh, Tim Burton got paid for uh Superman right like a ton sure. a big payout things like that Terrence Malick made an entire career for almost a decade and a half just <laughs> on getting payout yes. of things that didn't get I mean, made I, right? I love uh, Thomas Lennon's screenwriting book where he always talks about the highest he was ever paid was for Taxi 2 <laughs> the film which does not exist is <laughs> the most money he has ever made is Taxi 2. Uh, so much great uh, practical advice in that. Like when you're when you're sending script revisions, always lock the PDF so that nobody can make yes, changes. Yes. And they have to hire you to make changes to it. Ch- change everyone's names so you get all the credit. <laughs> yeah. Now, this I do have a question for you guys for because this is very much prime. We are going to use the title of a film and then make a sequel of it on the direct-to-DVD market but have nothing Mm. to do with the original movie, like Carrie 2, The Rage. This movie, I am shocked that did 
didn't happen uh, to because this seems like it's prime for that. Yeah, you know I thought you I mean? were gonna. I thought you were gonna excite me with some direct to video sequel no. of the game. <laughs> yeah. Scott Spiegel. I, just, yeah, yeah. I don't oh understand God. why it didn't happen. <laughs> like, because this seems like this is prime for that. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I think that some of these classy guys know their business. D- David Fincher was, was uh, uh, like quite respected i think he could probably because seven i'm sure also people wanted to do seven too and there was a sequel for seven that was planned out that was following yeah yeah, that was following morgan freeman's character and it didn't go through obviously but yeah it was planned yeah i I mean i i I could see him just putting you you can you can scuttle them in advance as well uh because yeah i think that there's the net too so those guys aren't against it (laughs) (laughs) they're screenwriters they will take anything (laughs) well here's a question is it too late? Can you make a game two now? And people would be like, oh, yeah. Into that. You or is it too far remake gone? it, I guess, is probably. Yeah, you can reboot this. Remake. I, want, I want a sequel. I want a franchise. Now that you mention it, I want like seven sequels that just keep on like carrying on the legacy. <laughs> okay. And there'll be like one that takes place in Vegas and like one that takes place. I mean, it's been long enough you could bring Michael Douglas back to torture somebody else. That's yeah. also true. Wait, are you talking? Wait, are we now talking about Squid Game? Like this with yeah, I guess, so. I guess Game maybe you can't do it anymore because there's been so many saws and Squid Games and what have you. It just you. seems like something that Frank Grillo would really excel at. <laughs> yes. Would he be delivering the game or in the game, though? Uh, maybe one. It could be like the first one, he's a victim. The second one, he becomes the game. Uh-oh. I don't know. Then Dolph Lundgren comes back as, as the game somehow. <laughs> all right, all right. I am ending this speculative <laughs> we episode. We could go on for a long time. <laughs> yeah. We sure could. All right, Cameron Maitland, once again, thank you so much. This was super fun. Yeah, this was fun. And I just want to say, yes, there is the Net 2.0 from 2006 starring oh Nikki God. Deloach. What? Wow, that's awesome. <laughs> all right. And Brendan Ross, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for coming back again. Oh, thank you for having me. It's been it's always fun hanging out with you too. And uh, you are excellent on season three of A Year in Film, which is currently airing. You've got some great takes on some stuff. How do people find you and your opinions and your screenings on the internet? Oh, don't don't worry about my opinions. Follow me on Neon Dreams. Uh, if you're listening to this and you weren't at the Out of the Blue 4K restoration uh, theatrical Canadian premiere, you just missed it but it was <laughs> congratulations went that. very well yeah um, <laughs> oh i'm sure i'm sure i hope people came dressed up in full linda man's costumes and full dennis <laughs> i left costumes. sobbing like no, no. Yeah, that that would be right. a weird yeah. one to dress up as <laughs> it's a weird one all right i'm gonna show up in my my canadian tuxedo like i'm going to can and i'm with dennis hopper sure. that's what oh, i'm gonna do fantastic yeah and if you yeah, if you want to wear a uh, jean jacket with Elvis on the back, that works too. <laughs> done and done. All right. And you can join us next week as we are heading to 2005 in the most epic way possible. Literally, we're looking at two epics. It's Terrence Malick's The New World and Ridley Scott's Kingdom of Heaven. And we're going to be joined by special guest Norm Wilner. That's coming up next week. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the A Year in Film podcast from Hollywood Suite. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to rate and review us on your podcast platform. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Hollywood Suite. Hollywood Suite is the home of the movies that shaped the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Always uncut and always commercial-free, Hollywood Suite lets you experience movies the way they were meant to be seen on four HD channels and Hollywood Suite On Demand. Subscribe today at hollywoodsuite.ca. The A Year in Film podcast is hosted by Becky Shrimpton and produced by Becky Shrimpton, Alicia Fletcher, and Cameron Maitland. And today featured Cameron Maitland and Brendan Ross as guests. Supervising producer is Emily Gagné. Executive producers are David Kynes and Julie Kamaria. Creative consultant was Ryan Maines. Audio engineering by Andy Reid. We'll see you next week. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.